You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. We are going to be in Psalms uh, chapter 14 this morning. Psalm chapter 14 starts off with a statement that I think is pretty relevant to our topic this morning, which is apologetics, the, the giving a reason for our faith. And, and sometimes we need to give a reason to those that say there is no God. And so Psalms chapter 14, starting in verse 1, I'm actually going to read the whole psalm, and so get comfortable for just a second. It's only seven verses, but it's pretty deep stuff. It's Psalm 14, Psalm 14, verse 1. You can see it up on the, the PowerPoint as well. But it says this, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Sometimes we think it's the, you know, it's the most wise, it's these, these scholars, the most learned people that are saying that there is no God. But according to the Bible, if the Bible's true, if there is a God and he inspired the Bible, then it says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It says, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there's no one, not, not one of them who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will e- evildoers never learn? Those that devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. And in the final verse, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that we we can have reasons for our faith, that you've given us logic and, and reason and understanding of you and your ways. God, open up our minds this morning as we as we dive into defending our faith and defending who you are. God, we worship you, the, the alone creator of this universe. We love you, God. We honor you. We give our lives to you. And everybody screamed, Amen. Well, this is the Mill Sunday School. It's been like, I was just thinking, it's been two months since I, I've, I've, I've spoken to you guys. I don't, I don't even feel like I know you anymore. Do you feel like you know me? It's been so long. And it's so good to be back as a, as a speaker. I know I've been here and introducing speakers and stuff, and that's been fun, but I've been really excited about this lesson this morning. We're talking about apologetics. Um, I just want to say, if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, there's cards on all, on all the tables. There should be, at least it says, first-timer card. If you fill that out and give it to the nice people as you leave, they'll give you a CD. It's from The Mill, and The Mill is on a Friday night. It's our, it's our college and 20-somethings meeting, and it's a sermon from the Friday night meeting and some original songs uh, from, from that, from the worship on Fridays. And so we're just glad that you're here at Mill Sunday School. We, we invite you to Friday nights as well. And, um, but right now, in the Mill Sunday School, we are on a series called Apologetics. And Apologetics is this Greek word. The Greek word is apologia. And it's literally the idea of uh, the, the, the discipline of defending a position through systematic uh, use of reason. And so it's kind of, see, it's in the Greek there. And, and the Greek word, apologia, I could just imagine the Greeks back in their day, like, um, like 200, 300, 400 B.C., this golden age of Greece when Plato and Aristotle were hanging out and people didn't have magazines or Facebook or computers or iTunes or DVDs to, to entertain themselves. And so a lot of their entertainment came from communication 
came from this thing called rhetoric. And they would sit around and they would talk and they would reason together. And Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, picks up on this and, and, and uses this word for what, like when he's standing before a judge in the, in the book of Acts. He says, and I apologia, I defended my faith before this guy. I think it was Felix when he uses that term. It defended my beliefs in front of him. And, and, and so this idea of defending our faith, defending what you believe in. And for us as Christian believers, today we're going to defend the idea of God. We're going to defend theism. And we're kind of taking a big step back because we're, you know, if, if you talk to an atheist and they're like, there's no God, and you're like, there is a God, then it might be a silly place to begin. I don't know, maybe silly, maybe not. But to say, the Bible says that there is a God. The atheist would say, I don't believe in your book. And you're like, well, it says in here that there's a God. I don't believe in your book. And so today we're going to look at proofs. What proofs do we have that, that sit foundationally before the Bible, maybe even before Jesus? Well, what kind of arguments can you bring before an atheist or an agnostic, someone who doubts the existence of God, to prove reasonably that he does, in fact, exist. And so for me, this is, this is part of my testimony, part of how I experience God. If I go back to my high school days, and I have a picture of me in high school. Check that out. I'm the dude in the middle. I'm graduating. Look at those sideburns. I don't know what I was thinking. There's my dad and my mom and my little bro. And this was graduation day of high school. And uh, I became a Christian in 10th grade, so two years prior prior yeah two years prior to when this photo was taken but um for me i i grew up catholic and i had a great experience all throughout my kid days as a catholic a little boy and uh at some point in high school like as a freshman or even in middle school my family kind of just stopped going to church and, and really it seemed like they were giving me the decision do i want to follow this or not and as a freshman and as a sophomore i was really i was okay with thinking through what do I want to believe? Do I want to go with another religion? Do I want to go with atheism? I was really up in the air in my high school days as to what I wanted to believe and really thought, what is the true religion? Is there even a God? I was in high school biology as a 10th grader with my cool sideburns and um, I was hearing things like evolution, the existence of, you know, this idea that things can just big bang and blow up and then there's amino acids and proteins and they get electrocuted by lightning or something and then from non-life becomes life and then from that life it survival of the fittest i was hearing things like that in high school and really questioning is is that ex explainable for everything is, is everything in life everything in existence a, a kind of an accident or is there a god that put things in place put design in place and I was really critical of any sort of belief, and I was really critical for myself. And I remember asking uh, other people of other religions what they believed, and I, I had some friends that were Christians. I remember just questioning them, like, why do you believe this? You know, science says this, why do you believe that? And for me, in 10th grade, it came down to me taking this first step that there is, in fact, a God. I thought, you know, for me, going back, like, even an evolutionary, atheistic explanations of things, there still needs to be a beginning point. And that beginning point is unexplainable to an atheist or evolution. I mean, even the the you know the idea that non-life can evolve into life. That idea, like for me, that was just too big of a gap, and I called that gap. Like whatever happened there, I said there has to be some other thing. Either it's a law or a being or God. And I started to 
think on this idea of God. And then I met some Christians and began questioning them and asking them about their God. And a lot of things just began to make sense. But for me, going back to my high school sideburn days, for me it was that first step of there is a God. And once I took that step, it wasn't too long before I said, who is this God? And found myself believing in the Bible, found myself believing in Jesus with good reason. But today we're going to look at um, just proofs for the existence of God. So what I want you to do is, is to dive right into your table. If, you, if you're a small table, you can go to another table. In fact, it might, be, it might behoove your table to be a little bigger because all you're going to do is assign someone to be a leader slash scribe. And should, there should be on, on every table, there should be a piece of paper that says proofs for God. And I have, I have spaces for 10. I don't know that you'll get to 10. I only have seven. So if you get more than seven, I'll be impressed. But I just want you to list proofs for the existence of God. Maybe you took a philosophy class a long time ago. Maybe you've done apologetics before. Maybe you know some proofs. So go around in your table and just list them. And I'm only going to give you like two minutes to list as many proofs as you can. So don't be afraid to join another table because the bigger the table, probably the more proofs you'll get. Ready? Get set. Go. All right, time's up. Pencils down. <laughs> did anybody get, uh, let's see, did anybody get more than four at their group? Nice, that cool, these cool tables. Nobody else? Oh, that cool table. And more than five? More than six? Six, seven? You got seven, eight? Niner? Ten, all ten? I mean, not all ten. I guess there's more. I only got seven. Here's the seven I got. So, discussion, proofs for the existence of God. Maybe some of you did start with, uh, this one, which is uh, the Bible. Did anybody start with the Bible? Like, start off, if, if you can prove that the Bible's authoritative, then you could show that you, there's a God of the Bible. So if you show the Bible's authoritative, then, then there's a proof. Uh, this one, Jesus came historically. So if you, if you have someone that says, yeah, I believe that Jesus came and he was a good man. And as soon as you're like, oh, he's a good man, he was a good teacher, then what he was saying was, the good thing that he was teaching was that he was God. And so that leads to the something called the Lewis, C.S. Lewis trilemma, the liar, lunatic, Lord. Anybody list that? Nobody? A couple of people um, listed that. It's like, if Jesus was a good teacher, then, then he, what he was teaching was that he was God. And so that's not, you know, that's, a, that's not just a good teaching. That's, he was either lying about that, or he was crazy, he was a lunatic, or he was truly teaching good things, which would be true things, and he was, in fact, Lord. So that's a proof. The other one is an ontological argument from the being of God. This is like a Middle Ages um, Anselm's argument for God. Did anybody list this one? You did? Nice. Lots of people did. If you've taken philosophy class, maybe after Sunday school today, you can come up and explain this one to me. <laughs> because I spent the week trying to figure it out. And it's kind of like a word game. It's like a pure reason alone. But I was talking with a Taylor, I don't know if Taylor Brooke is in here, she's the mill administrator. She's in a philosophy class now, and she just learned this proof this week and kind of helped me understand it a little bit. But she even said that her philosophy teacher, to him, so I think he's some, he believes in God of some sort, he said this proof was the most real for him. He, he started believing in God, he thought this proof actually proved God the most. And I'm just going to briefly say it, and if you're as confused as I am, just know that you're probably in a similar boat with a lot of other people. But... If you say that there is no God, so you say there's no God, but then you can imagine a being like God, let's use the definition God uh, as a term, if you can imagine God who is both perfect 
all-perfect, and all-powerful, then you can imagine this thing, but it doesn't exist. But in your head, you can imagine it. So wouldn't you say that to be that to be in existence is more powerful and perfect than to be non-existent? Sure. And so therefore, this being that is all-powerful and all-perfect that you can imagine must exist because just if it only exists in your imagination, that's putting limits on this definition for all-powerful and all-perfect. So therefore, the first statement that was said has to be a negative statement, which was that God does not exist. Anybody else really confused? <laughs> what? Okay, yeah, yeah, research. It's kind of a fun argument, and then atheists will jump on that argument, and with, with limited understanding of that argument say, does that mean you could just imagine something, and then whatever you can imagine has to be real, and then they'll be like, I can imagine a purple unicorn with pink dots, <laughs> and, and you'll be like, dang it, I don't, I don't know how to, I, I'm sorry, and then, but it's a good proof, but it, there's more to, under. I think it really comes down to your definition of God being this all-perfect, um, all-powerful being, so for whatever that's worth, hopefully that, that just quenches, no, it doesn't quench, hopefully it irritates your appetite, no, gets, no, it thirsts, no, it it qu- no, it quenches. His- no, whatever it does. Hopefully it... No, it doesn't quench. What? <laughs> Can't hear anything. This is like my worst nightmare right now. People just screaming at me while I'm stumbling around trying to think. All right, the next one. <laughs> just moving right along. Um, the, the next one I'm going to spend some more time talking. In fact, some of you may have opened up your notes and saw that we're going to talk about the cosmological proofs, uh, a proof from design, a moral proof and a proof from existence. So maybe some of you, how many of you looked at this and then used those as your proofs? You cheated. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, cosmological proofs, we're going to talk about these in just a second. Basically, they're proofs on how things got there, how we got here, and so therefore, yeah, it must have had a beginning in some way. So I'm going to talk about those in a second. So hold off. We will come back to the, the cosmological. The next one is a, a, an argument from design. If there's design then there is a designer. How many of you listed this one as your proof? Probably many of you. Yeah, many of you did. And this idea that this this idea of entropy, which is, you know, this this tendency towards chaos. Things move, things balance themselves out. It goes from order to disorder. And so this room was very ordered when we all came in. There wasn't like coffee cups everywhere, and the chairs were like perfectly round. And then we came in here. Then we're going to leave. And then a hospitality team has to come in and clean because of the law of entropy. That, that things move from order to disorder just by things happening and time progressing. So therefore, if things move from order to disorder, how in the world is there order in the world? And so, and so you, you could argue that there's a designer, and that's why there's things like designs in nature. And we'll talk about this one um, as well. The next one is the moral argument. How many of you used the moral argument or just listed it? As if there's a moral law, then there's a moral lawgiver. We'll talk about this one as well. And how many of you just said experience? We can experience God and tell our story of how we have experienced God, and that's somehow a proof for others to believe. Like experience God, like I've experienced Him. How many of you use that one? A couple. And then, um, then there's others. There's other explanations. How many of you listed one that I did not listed? List. Sweet. All right. Well, here's the four. Today we're going to talk about these four. The four highlighted in red ones, cosmological design, the moral argument, and the experience um, argument. So we're going to start with the cosmological. And the cosmological proofs for the existence of God come from this dude, Thomas Aquinas. 
see him writing down things, see his little halo. He was a pretty cool guy because of his halo and because of his writing down things. It, it, the dates he lived are up there, 1225 to 1274, so he lived in the Middle Ages. He was an Italian Christian uh, philosopher, a thinker, really studied in the Greek way of doing things. In fact, I was, I was just looking at his life and like his biography is, of his life, and it's very fascinating. Just, so, just a little rabbit trail. He was uh, a dude that lived in the Middle Ages. And, and in the Middle Ages, at least in Italy, around where he was living, there was kind of, he wanted to become a monk, and there was two choices for monks. There was the Franciscan monks and the Dominican monks. And his family wanted him to be a Franciscan monk. And so the, the, the Franciscans are more about um, the, the vow of poverty, uh, just normal speaking, normal like going to a village and, and teaching and, and then and a very simple, methodical way of life. And the Dominicans were m- more known for study and, and thought and research. The Dominicans were the nerds. We would kind of be, in, in this old way of thinking, we would kind of be the Dominicans of New Life Church because we're the nerds, right? Nerd power. And so, and so Thomas Aquinas wanted to be a nerd, a, a Dominican type of monk, and his family wanted him to be a Franciscan kind of monk. And I guess there was like some big divide between, oh, my son's not a Dominican, and oh, my son's not a Franciscan. It's kind of like these weird little denominational things that we get so worked up over sometimes. But anyways, so he goes off to Rome. When he's 19 years old, he, he gets accepted into the, um, the Dominican monkery school of thought, whatever. <laughs> Anyway, it's not the right phrase, but so he's, he goes off to Rome to join the Dominicans, and his brothers find out that he left and is going to become a Dominican. So maybe his mom told his older brothers, and, and Thomas Aquinas was the seventh, he was the youngest kid of seven. So his other older brothers go to Rome, and they capture him, like tie him up and bring him back so that he couldn't become a Dominican. And during and it's like supposedly like two years of this captivity, like his older brothers are just keeping him at the home so he wouldn't become a Dominican. Like that's pretty messed up, first of all. And then this is really messed up. Because his older brothers, you had to be a you had to be celibate to be a Dominican, which means you can't have had sex. And so his older brothers hired him a prostitute to seduce him and sleep if you can imagine your older anybody have older brothers? That's like that's horrible. Your older brothers to try to seduce you with a prostitute so you'll sleep with a prostitute, then you can't become a Dominican, so you have to become a Franciscan. Like, what a messed up older brother. That's just messed up. All because he wanted to be a nerd and study. And and so, but the, the story is, is that he, he got a stick and he chased away the prostitute with a stick and he didn't sleep with her so that he could become a Dominican. So, round of applause for Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. So Thomas Aquinas, so he has, so we're giving credit to Thomas Aquinas for the five cosmological proofs. And I have up here the works of Thomas Aquinas. He wrote a, a big, I mean, it's as big, and it's bigger than you think, because it's got like thin pages, like a Bible. So it's like, it's, it's almost maybe as thick as the Bible. This is a pretty big, vol, it's a two-volume work by Thomas Aquinas. It's called Summa Theologica. Yeah, and it's called The Summary of Theology. Just the summary, no big deal, just these two humongous books. And, and in it, he summarizes all of theology, and which is pretty cool. He goes into every topic you could think of and writes something about it. Kind of like in the way Aristotle, and he was a big Aristotle fan. He was a big nerd of his day. And Aristotle would do these arguments that build one upon the other. And, and so Thomas Aquinas, in that line of thought, said, let's bring that to theology. And so he writes The Summary of Theology, these two 
huge volumes. This is volume two. I'll put it down. This is volume one. And at the very beginning of volume one, we're talking like page right after the introduction, he starts off his theology with, if we're going to talk about God, Theos, we need to prove his existence. And so Thomas Aquinas starts off with some very famous, the five cosmological proofs for the existence of God. Have any of you seen these before, studied them, looked at them? If you've taken philosophy, you've probably seen them. If you've uh, studied apologetics, maybe you've seen them. Um, but the first one is, so we're going to list five, and you could list them in your notes if you would like. There's, there's a place to do that. The first one is motion. Number one, motion. And Thomas Aquinas argues that if there's motion, there must have been a mover. In fact, I'll, I'll put this, this sentence up there. He kind of stole it from Aristotle. This idea of if there's motion, there is a mover, an unmoved mover. That's a cool phrase. I like that. An unmoved mover. This idea that, that things don't just move by themselves. Therefore, if there is motion, someone had to move it. Something had to move it. And like if you keep going back in history, all the way back to like the Big Bang or whatever. It's like, oh, the Big Bang, that's the start of the motion. Well, where did that potential energy come for that Big Bang? Because things just don't go from potentiality to movement without a mover. And so I have over here, we've set up an awesome dominoes maze of doom. It's pretty sweet. You see that? Oh, it's so beautiful. And so this will never, I mean, as soon as you knock one down, it'll all move. And, and there'll be motion. Hopefully they'll all move it's, if it's been set up correctly. If it, if it isn't set up correctly, we know who to blame. His name's Patrick. I don't see him. Anyways. Um, so it's, it, this will just stay like this forever until something moves. An earthquake moves, a bird comes in, and, or someone plays the piano. Something moves this thing. It'll just sit here like this until it is put into motion. And Thomas Aquinas said, well, going back in history, as far back as you can, that there has to be, you know, like, okay, even, the, even an atheist would say, okay, maybe the Big Bang started all motion. Well, what started that big bang? There, well, a bigger, bigger bang. It's like, okay, well, what happened to the bigger, bigger bang? How did it start? And there has to be, at some point, a mover, an unmoved mover, which Aquinas says is the first proof for God. So, dominoes, here we go. Let's see what happens. Yes! Nice work. Well done, Patrick. Well done. Nice setup. So if there's motion, there's a mover, an unmoved mover. That's proof number one. Proof number two, cause. If you're writing down notes, put cause. Nothing can be its own cause. There has to be an uncaused causer. <laughs> I like that term as well. But you can say, like, oh, that I caused myself. It's like, no, you, no, you didn't cause yourself. Like, you made yourself? Well, maybe you, you, you used some things to make you who you are, but you didn't cause your own being. Your parents caused you. Your, your mom and dad, they loved each other very much, and so they came together and they, they, they had you. you. Your parents caused you. It's like, well, where did your parents come from? Well, they came from their parents. And so nothing can be its own cause. And, and so that, the, the, like the existence of the earth, like where did the earth come from? Well, the earth made the earth. Well, that's silly. No, the earth didn't make the earth. Something had to cause the earth. And so this next proof thinking of through that so okay there has to be a cause for something else for something to be there has to be a cause it leads us right into this next proof which goes kind of hand in hand which is necessity proof number three is necessity maybe you've heard it called contingency which is a, a big word for what is necessary for something else and and what is necessary for 
if we follow causation, the, the second proof, all the way back to existence, we could say that there is things and there is not things, right? Can everybody think of something that is? Yeah. Can everybody think of something there is not? It's harder, but yeah, you could think of something that doesn't exist. And so if there is things that exist and there is things that do not exist, then what caused the things that do exist? Well, for, for Thomas Aquinas, he said, well, there had to be a first cause, a, an uncaused causer, a first cause for all that is in existence. And then we could go off of that and say, you know, there's other causes. And so it's, it's this idea of, of necessity. There has to be something is necessary for the earth to, um, to be in existence. And so a scientist, an atheist could say, well, the Big Bang, put it into motion. Okay, but then what did that Big Bang come from? Had to, something had to have been necessary for that thing to be in existence. If you keep following that back, it's kind of like the motion. There has to be an uncaused causer, an unmoved mover, someone, uh, something that, is, that isn't necessary to be in being, but is in being, that gives all cause to other things. <sighs> is everybody okay? It's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling stuff, which is fun, because God gave us reason. So number four, the idea of degrees of perfection. There's degrees of different things. Like there's degrees of how hot something is. Hot, hotter, hottest, right? And the hottest thing is like, say, fire. If there was a fire in this room, burning wood, then that very hot thing, the hottest thing, whatever, would give cause to other things. So for instance, if I had like, some metal and I wanted to get it hot but it was just warm, I would put it in the hottest thing and the cause of the hottest thing would make the other things hot. You got it? So, so here, here it is and written down. Like heat, the thing that is the hottest gives heat to another. And so therefore, if we, if we just take the simple analogy of heat and we go into, say, goodness or love or truth, then there has to be something that is the best. So there's, there's various degrees of perfection. Therefore, there is something that is totally perfect that gives perfection to other things. There's something that is all good that gives goodness to other things. There's something that is all true, all loving, that gives those properties to another thing because they're not found naturally, the, the law of entropy, etc. So does that, does that make sense? Hopefully you're not just listing them and looking at me like, this is insane. This is an insane man talking. No, it's 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 based upon reason and, and these these proofs. This 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 last one I like a lot. It's the proof of governance, the proof of governance, which will kind of lead us into the the design uh, the the design proof. But the the, the law of governance in Thomas Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologica, the fifth way of proving the existence of God, he says there's there's governance. There's things that seem to be governed by other things. There's things that seem to be hitting their goal. And so Thomas Aquinas writes it like this. He says, If an arrow hits the bullseye, we ask, where is the archer? Right? If you're looking at a tiny little bullseye, and then an arrow goes into that bullseye, you wouldn't just think, dude, that just randomly happened. No, you think, where the, someone just shot an arrow, and it nearly hit me, but instead it hit the target, it hit the goal. And so we see in life, you know, using that analogy, we see in life that there are things hitting their goals. Like if you just think of something like the circle of life and let's say bacteria is eating something that's dead and then that bacteria breaks down the dead thing so that plants can live off the soil and the plants 
take the sun's energy and they make food and then the, the animals eat the food and then the animals die and then the bacteria breaks them down and it's this, this circle of life. And so even these little bacterias are hitting a goal within the circle of life and the circle of life in, in and of itself is this goal to keep all of other lives in, in motion and, and, and going. And so it's not like life is as if this, you know, millions of arrows flying everywhere and not a goal is being hit. We look at life and we say, you know, Pikes Peak, that's awesome and that's beautiful. You know, a goal was hit there because that's, you know, it's somewhat, maybe not perfect, but it's somewhat beautiful. And, and we look at, you know, the grass has gotten mowed and someone, out, you know, nailed their, their goal and they, they mowed the grass. And, and, like, things got set up and things got ordered. And so, therefore, there, since there's order and design and we see goals being hit, we have to ask, where is the goal keeper? Where's the goal, not the goalkeeper, the goal maker, the archer in this grand scheme of things? So there they are, the five cosmological proofs for the existence of God. And I think some of them are very worthy to be brought up and talked about at, with an atheist. It's like, oh, well, you know, well, where did motion come from? He's like, well, it just came from a Big Bang. Well, what, where did that potential motion come from? He's like, well, it just came from nowhere. He's like, well, from nowhere? So your faith is in nothing and nowhere. My faith is in God. You know, and, and so begin that conversation with, say, an atheist that does not believe in the existence of God. So moving right along to the proof from design. The, the idea that if there is design in the natural things, then there must be some sort of designer of some kind. And so all we're doing right now in the Mill Sunday School is, is, is proving the existence of God. We're taking a step back, maybe another uh, time, another week, we prove the existence of the God of the Bible, or of Jesus, or that the Bible is authoritative. But right now we're just looking at design. If, and if there's design, then there is a designer. And maybe that designer, if you're, if you're talking to a very atheistic person that maybe believes in evolution, um, they would say, oh, the designer is this process of evolution. It's like, well, that's, that process of evolution, you could just ask the question simply, where did the design for the process of evolution come from and, and it, you know it, so there is still a design in evolution even according to atheists that would say there is no designer in fact i was talking to with a really cool atheist this week he called up the mill offices and he's starting an atheist club at ppcc he's a really cool guy and he wanted some christians to debate and so i said well let, let's just meet together let's ha have a conversation so he came into the office and it's just very respectable very nice uh, would not interrupt me. I wouldn't interrupt him. We weren't choking each other and calling each other names. We were just having a conversation about God. I believe in God, and he believes that there is no God. He's atheistic, not agnostic, but uh, truly an atheist. And we had a conversation about evolution and, and, and the process of natural selection. And natural selection, is I'm sure you learned in high school like I did when I had the sideburns, that the process of natural selection is based upon the survival of the fittest. That the fittest things survive and the least fit things don't survive. And that theory is now pretty old with, with Darwin. And yet, no one in the scientific world is ex extremely happy with natural selection. And so I was talking with this atheist, and he's like, yeah, the, the, it's true that the process of natural selection doesn't explain some things, like altruistic behaviors in animals, where they, they kind of take care of each other, or altruistic behaviors in us as humans. Like if someone is sick or hurt or handicapped, we give them the closest space in a parking lot. We take care of them as a society. And so therefore, like, how did that evolve? Like, where's the survival? I mean, how, does, how do we continue evolving if, if the weakest have a special place in our society? Like, are we going to evolve into 
more handicapped people and more, um, I, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird thought, but, but, and so we were just talking, me and this atheist, and he said, yeah, natural selection, it's, it's not the best theory out there. But, uh, you know, he was quick to say evolution is, but we still haven't found that process. And to me, it's kind of like saying, um, I believe that food can bake in an oven, but I don't believe that it is heat that cooks them. Because it's the process. Like, if you believe in evolution, but you don't believe in the, the process, then, then what in the world? Like, how, you know, you're just, I don't know. It's, it was confusing to me. And he said, yeah, it, it is confusing. And so for me, it was like, I, I see design in nature. And so there's this movie out. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Expelled. Has anybody seen this movie? It's a pretty cool Christian film. Um, it's, it's actually not Christian. It's just for a, dis, a, a argument for design, argument for intelligent design. It's called Expelled. No Intelligence Allowed by Ben Stein, that guy that uh, a long time ago in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off with the teacher that said, Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> Remember that? Of course you do. Uh, and so he's that guy. He's actually not a Christian. I believe he comes from a Jewish background. But he, he made this documentary, this film called Expelled, in which he says that um, there is design out there. And he kind of uh, interviews scientists and interviews people that believe in design, whether they're Christian or not. And he says, basically the gist of this film, is, it's very one-sided, but uh, like most kind of documentaries like this are. But to its credit, he at the end of this film, he interviews uh, um, Richard Dawkins, who is a big atheist. He's uh, re- wrote a book that I'm reading now called The God Delusion, in which he says it's delusional to believe in a god. And, and so Ben Stein, this... this uh, theist that is saying there is a god there is there is intelligent design is is interviewing dawkins and we're actually going to take a look at this clip um so it's dawkins the skinny guy and 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 stein you'll recognize him from the movie uh ferris bueller's day off here we go professor dawkins seemed so convinced that god doesn't exist that i wondered if he would be willing to put a number on it well, it's hard to put a figure on it, but, but I, I, I mean, I put it as something like, you know, 99% against or something. Well, how do you know it's 99% against, say, and not 97? No, I did, you asked me to put a figure on it, and I, it, I'm not comfortable putting a figure on it. I think it's, I, I just think it's very unlikely. What? But you couldn't put a number on it? No, of course not. So it, it could would be 49%? Well, I, it would be, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely, but, but I, but, and it's, quite far from 50 percent how do you know i don't know i mean I, I i put an argument in the book well then who did create the heavens and the earth why do you use the word who you see you you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who well then how did it get created well um by a very slow process well how did it start nobody knows how, how it started we know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. What was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right. How did that happen? I told you we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. no, no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, or well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology. 
and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. Interesting, don't you think? So there's this argument from design that Ben Stein is saying, okay, where did it all come from? Where's the design? And Richard Dawkins, the atheist, kind of a um, kind of the big atheist of our day, I think, the spokesman for atheism in a lot of ways in America and Great Britain, says, well, maybe another, in another planet at another time, things evolved so much so that there was a designer that brought some chemical to the earth that it then formed the existence of life. And then Ben Stein jumps on that and, of course, says, so you, you, you believe in intelligent design, just not God. The, uh, the intelligent designer, but it's a process, not a God. And which, to me, brings this question in. It's like, that's, in some way, that's um, an amount of faith in a non-designer because it's unexplainable. Whereas, whereas we, as Christian believers, Ben Stein making this film, says, our faith is in a designer. Because everywhere we look, even according to... Dawkins, this atheist, there is design. There's no denying the design. And so therefore, there, that is the proof, the, the, third, the second one we're talking about called the, the proof from design. God exists because there's design in this world, and if there's design, then there has to be a designer. Got it? Deep, huh? Good, though. This next one, the moral proof. And this is the one that is in... I'm rereading uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's actually just one volume within this larger book of his collected writings. Has anybody read Mere Christianity? Yes, lots of us have, because we're nerds, and it's a nerdy book to read in a good way, like a good nerd book. And, and in Mere Christianity, the first, I mean, if you ever read Mere Christianity, you only have to read the first, like, 40 pages. If you read the first 40 pages, you will get clearly this, this moral proof for the existence of God. A.K.A. if there is a moral law in human beings, then there is a transcendent moral law giver. We all, as a species, have this moral law. Then that moral law had to have come from something transcendent, something outside of the human consciousness, because we all have it. And so it goes something like, the, the argument at least, goes something like this. Imagine someone drowning and getting attacked by a shark. Ooh, there they are. I, I don't know if that's actually a fish or a shark or what that is exactly, or a dolphin. It looks pretty mean, though. But there, there's a person in this picture, and they're drowning, and and they're getting attacked by a fish. And let's just say, you know, you're also scuba diving, and the scuba diving trip goes horribly wrong, and someone in the group gets attacked by a shark thing, shark water beast, whatever that is, and they're getting attacked, and you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to die. And so we, as human beings, have two instincts. One instinct would be a human drives. Uh, one would be to save ourselves, to, to, to save ourselves, to not go out there because 
we could get hurt. We could die. And that could be called the instinct for survival. We need to survive. And then we have this other instinct. Even an atheist, an evolutionary scientist would say, yeah, uh, human beings, other beings have altruistic behaviors. That may be something called a herd instinct. This instinct to help our own species, to help our own family, etc. And so here, here's the situation where you're scuba diving on your honeymoon vacation and, and someone is getting attacked by a water beast in the water and they're going to drown and die. And you have two instincts inside of you. One, stay away from the water beast, shark thing, and save yourself or else you might die as well. Or this other instinct, the herd instinct, to help another human being. And so if that's all the instincts that we have, an instinct to save ourselves and an instinct to help others, then that it would just be a matter of instincts. What instinct was the greatest instinct? That's what you would do. Oh, if the situation doesn't seem that dangerous, I'll get out of the boat and help them. Or, whoa, the situation seems extremely dangerous. There's more than one shark water beast. I'm not getting out of the water because I'm going to die if I try to help them and try to save them. So if that's all that was, then, then, then that, it would just be instincts. But C.S. Lewis argues there's, there's a third instinct, a third drive, telling us that one of these two decisions, there's actually a right and a wrong about these two choices. And this, this consciousness, this moral law that is inside of us, guides us towards not just an instinct, but this idea that there's a right and there is a wrong. And so C.S. Lewis calls this a moral law. In the book, he develops it beautifully, and I'm kind of probably not doing it justice as I just explain it quickly. And so you can read it for yourself. It's, it's once again, in, in Mere Christianity by, by that guy, C.S. Lewis. And you can read that book. It's th- this moral law inside of us all. And so if there's a moral law, if there's good and evil, and if there's this thing inside of us that says, don't be selfish and, and take from someone else... <coughs> And if you do that, then what you're doing is wrong. Then, then that, that moral law has to come from somewhere, has to come from a higher being, has to come from an all-good being, is what C.S. Lewis goes on to say. And, and furthermore, he says, well, well, what about when we don't act good? Like, what, what if we as Christians don't act according to our conscience? Let's say we steal something. Well, the, C.S. Lewis would say that usually if, if we do something wrong, there's, there's a special circumstance or an excuse as to why we did something wrong. Like, why did you steal that from that person? Well, I stole it from them because they stole it from me. It was originally mine. Say, okay, there's an excuse. There's a reason behind why you did something that would normally go against the consciousness, the moral law of the moral lawgiver. And and C.S. Lewis goes on to say that because we need to think of excuses when we're bending and breaking the moral law, the excuses in and of themselves are proof that there is a a moral law. Because if if we didn't have to make an excuse, it's just like, Why'd you steal that? Because I did. It's like, okay. This doesn't make, like, no, why did you steal it? Well, here's why. I need to give an explanation for why I stole it, or I need to apologize, because there is a moral law inside of us. Do you see the proof? Hopefully I've explained it well enough. You could read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and it's in its full brilliance. The final proof comes from our own experience. If you're a believer in God, and if you're a believer especially in the Christian God, the God of the Bible, then you have in some way given your life over to Him and experienced Him in some way. Jesus says, you know, you can't be the same. You can't, you, the, the fruit of a believer, your, your life will change. You'll be born again in John chapter 3 in his conversation to the, the Pharisee Nicodemus. says, you'll be born again when you believe in me. And the idea of being born again is, 
you're going to be different. You're going to experience God in such a way that your life will be different. And that is a very beautiful thing. And in fact, if you're, if you're communicating with an atheist or an agnostic and, and you're like, man, what's it? Man, I, I got all my, you know, all my uh, arguments jumbled up and I forgot my Sunday school notes. I, I guess I can't have a conversation. I guess I can't even talk about why I believe. Don't think like that. That's silliness. Every single one of us has a reason for why we believe. And so many of us, so, some of us, like myself and my own conversion experience, I had a very uh, reasoned response as to why I chose to believe in God and then the God of the Bible. But many of us have have a testimony of what God did in our life. We were, we were one way and then we became another way. We were stuck in sin and selfishness and God saved us out of that and our life changed. And that is, in fact, a proof. It's a proof from our own experience. So as, as I close today, I just want to encourage you that, that we all have a reason for our faith. And some of the reasons, maybe some of us as, as Mill Sunday Schoolers are nerds, and, and maybe some of us knew these moral arguments already. And maybe some of us in our moment of doubt and thinking, okay, is this really true? Is this whole church thing, the Bible thing really true? You fall back on, like, like me in some ways, you fall back on these reasoned responses to why I do believe in God and build arguments from there. But for some of us, doubt is taken away when we experience God. Doubt is taken away when... Now, I could look back over my life and know that God was there. I know that when, my, when I say a prayer, it's, it's heard. I know that I and myself have maybe seen things that are unexplainable, that when I prayed for something, I saw it. And how awesome that is when we experience God through prayer, through meditation, through reading the Scripture, through responding to Him, and then our life is changed. And so I want, to encourage, I want you to leave here thinking, okay, you might forget some of these moral arguments. Some of you won't. Some of you are this like your thing. You're an apologetist apologetician, whatever it's called. You're one of those people that love these things, the reason, the, the reasons why we believe. And there's others of us that are, that are perfectly okay with communicating, here's why I believe, I've experienced God. And in fact, if you talk to someone who does not believe, usually what doesn't really work is like arguing with them and, and beating them over the head with the Bible, figuratively, of course saying, like, you, you know, you have to believe in this, and then this is this, and, you know, they, maybe they have actually learned and studied those arguments before, but what's truly awesome and beautiful is when you share your life with someone, when you share your experiences of why you believe with someone, and they could look at your, your life and say, you know what, there is something miraculously different about the way you live than the way I live, and so I'm going to believe in the being that you believe in because there's evidence and fruit, which is kind of... I'm going to close with that, but but open it up for for next week's conversation because we're going to have a speaker, Matt Ayers, who is one of the missions pastors here. He's the missions pastor over Colorado Springs. In this idea of you know taking what we have in the church, the, the four walls of the church, the money, the resources, the love we have for people, and bringing that to our city of Colorado Springs, and, and saying here's why you know we live the way we live because we believe in a higher power, the God of the Bible. And so, and so he's going to speak next week about, you know, we can know all this stuff with our heads, but it, but it really makes the most sense when we live it out. And so I, I want to go back to the, the scripture we, we read this, this morning when we started, and it's Psalms 14. And I just want, if you're comfortable closing your eyes and just listening, then, then go ahead and do that. Because this scripture is, is against the, the person, the, you know, we sometimes think that, it's the atheist, it's the most intelligent person, it's the most trained, it's the most scientific, it's the most thoughtful person that's the atheist. And we look at, you know, some of these good thinkers, maybe some, maybe some of us 
have had very smart professors that were advocates of atheism. But this scripture, if, if there is a designer, if there is an unmoved mover, if there is a moral lawgiver, and he is the God of the Bible, then this is what the Word, the God, the Word of God says about our God. It says, it says about those that say there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1 and 2 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. But the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, any who seek God. Let's pray to Him. God, we, we want to be those that, that You figuratively look down upon on this earth. We want to be those that seek You. We want to be those that, that follow after You, that are convinced that You do exist, whether it be by experience or some reasoned, thoughtful response to the truth You've presented to us on this earth. God, we want to be those that seek after You, that know You truly and fully. God, we worship You as Creator. We worship You as Designer. We worship You as the One who gave movement to everything and yet is unmoved, is unchanged. We worship You as the the Holy, the True, the Good, the Perfect God that You are. God, we thank You. We leave here excited to to share our faith. We leave here excited to, to know the reasons why we believe. And so it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. All right, friends, you're officially dismissed. We'll see you next week. Peace out.